Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The reading for today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. I will be reading in Portuguese. The English translation will be on the screen. Que concluiremos então? Estamos em posição de vantagem? Não. Já demonstramos que tanto judeus quanto gentios estão debaixo do pecado. Como está escrito, não há nenhum justo, nenhum sequer. Não há ninguém que entenda, ninguém que busque a Deus. Todos se desviaram, foram-se injuntamente inúteis. Não há ninguém que faça o bem, não há nenhum sequer. Sua garganta é um túmulo aberto, com a língua engana. Veneno de víbora está em seus lábios. Sua boca está cheia de maldição e amargura. Seus pés são ágeis para derramar sangue. Ruína e desgraça marcam os seus caminhos e não conhecem o caminho da paz. Aos seus olhos, inútil temer a Deus. Sabemos que tudo o que a lei diz, o dizem aqueles que estão debaixo dela, para que toda boca se cale e o mundo todo esteja sob o juízo de Deus. Portanto, ninguém será declarado justo diante da liberação do sinal obediência à lei, pois é mediante a lei que nos tornamos plenamente conscientes de pecado. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian. Uh, if you've never met me before, I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Before kids are dismissed, uh, let me announce uh, some eventful things that have happened this week. Many of you got the email about this, but to review, uh, some of the big events happened. How should I summarize this? Well, the church building went bad and didn't put on a diaper. That's kind of what happened. So what happened was uh, somewhere between last Sunday's service and Monday morning, a pipe broke in the education wing over here on the first floor and dumped water for several hours to half a day onto our building. And so that was discovered on Sunday morning. And uh, Basically, I, I'm not going to go into details of this story because I'm actually going to save it for another sermon. I nearly made it my introduction for this sermon too, but it's actually going to be a really good intro for the last sermon in the series. So I'm going to uh, save the specifics of that story later, but what uh, this resulted in is uh, damage to the floor, the vinyl floor on the first level here in the education wing, and a lot more damage downstairs to the ceiling and the floor and some of the walls in the classroom space downstairs. And so we're gonna be experiencing some uh, transition here for quite some time. I don't know if any of you have experienced something like this where you have to kind of put an insurance claim and work with a restoration company, work with your adjuster. We're going through all that right now. So many questions are still left unanswered, including how much time is this gonna take? How much is it gonna cost? All that stuff is still being figured out. So. Each week, we might have some different things going on. So for the time being, this is what's going on. The uh, children's church that, uh, that is still meeting in the upper classroom, the lower room preschool is now moving to the parlor. So if you have kids in that age group, you're not going through this hall downstairs anymore. You're now going back to the parlor uh, to drop your kids off there. And for the time being, the, uh, the nursery uh, in the toddler room is going to uh, 
still be at the end of this hallway, but that could change depending on the duration of time it takes to place the floors there when that time comes. And especially in the mother's room too, is going to be moved um, for nursing mothers up to this first floor for the time being in the old uh, room that we uh, put um, our babies in. Uh, so that's kind of a shakeup for now. There's more details in your inbox if you haven't read that uh, yet. A uh, big shout out, by the way, to our staff and children's ministry team leaders who put in some hours this week, brothers and sisters, to make sure that we could still have a setting where our kids learn about Jesus. So we see them, thank them for all the effort that they did to kind of move things around a little bit. So that's what's going on. We'll give more details as things shake up. So now, families with kids in preschool to first grade, uh, you are dismissed to bring your kids to those different spaces if it applies. Back to the sermon series, we are uh, just getting started over three weeks in now of a sermon series called A Wonderful Life, which is a look at how a comprehensive view of the storyline of scripture and God's restoration of all things opens our eyes and our hearts to the satisfaction of seeing the wonder in this life by seeing the wonderful works of God. My theological mentor, Hugh Herman Bobbin, is the person I credit with kind of the main voice behind this sermon series. We're doing 10 weeks in this series, and these sermons that we're kicking off initially, these kind of first uh, four sermons, are building a groundwork for applying this theology in all of life. So we're essentially looking at creation, fall, Redemption, classic Christian categories for understanding theology. And then starting in October 10th and following, we're going to see how this, this mission of restoration, this good news of restoration, is applied in the church and applied in our relationships, the area of work, culture, and public life. Uh, so that's the sermon series, and that will take us all the way up to the season of Advent. So today's sermon is following again in that storyline where we opened up with God being our highest good in and of himself. Last week we looked at what it meant to be created with purpose, both us as human beings made in the image of God and then also the purpose of all creation. And now we are going to consider uh, what went wrong and how things went sideways. So that's the sermon today. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive into this theme for today. Let's pray. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Give us right now, in this moment, a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of Christ. We want our eyes and our hearts to be enlightened with the gospel. So help us, Lord, to know the hope to which you have called us. Help us to know the riches of the glorious inheritance that your saints receive in Jesus Christ and the immeasurable greatness of your wonderful work in us and through us. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is wrong? What is wrong with the world? Why is there conflict, division, and injustice? And how can we experience peace and reconciliation and justice? Why is there disease, sickness, and death? And how can we experience wholeness and health life. As you know, these questions got real and tangible in the last couple of years. This congregation has experienced a battle with cancer, a global pandemic, unrest in our city, 
divisive politics, and strained relationships over COVID policies and political opinions. And to make matters worse, it's becoming increasingly common for Christians to answer these opening questions by giving answers that start to stray away from a holistic and orthodox understanding of the Christian faith that we find in the scriptures and in church history. It's important to get not only these questions right, but also the answers right, because how you define the problem will influence your solution. How do we redeem ourselves from this situation? How do we receive redemption? Right now, I see Christians dividing into two different camps based on how they answer the question, what is wrong? One camp is starting to see that the problems we face are mainly in the systems and the structures of our world. And the second camp sees that the problem resides mainly with individual choice and responsibility. Both of these views are seeing an important aspect that's important to see, but neither of them are completely grounded in what Christians have believed throughout the centuries, and that's a problem. And we need to go back to scripture to remember what is wrong and what is the solution to what ails us. So let's begin at the beginning with Genesis 3 where this all got started so that we can get on the same page again. In the beginning, God made everything and declared it to be good. God didn't make sin. Sin is not natural to creation. Yet soon after God made all things, sin into the world. And here's the account from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, We must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The serpent is understood in this passage to be Satan, the great fallen angel who is now in active rebellion against God as, his great, as a great adversary against God and against us. Angels too are created, but they also rebel. And the scriptures don't give much of an account of what went down and how it happened. And some people really get into trying to figure out the juicy details of this, but all that the scriptures emphasize is that it occurred and it continues to be a problem. And it's why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, that our struggle is against other people. Our struggle is not against other people, but it's against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. And here in Genesis 3, we see the struggle for the first time. God permitted Adam and Eve, the first humans, to literally eat every tree. Go nuts. You can eat of every tree except one. Most of God's commands were you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. This is the one thing. Don't do this. Adam and Eve had one job to do, right? Don't eat 
this fruit one job, one command to follow. And they didn't. They didn't follow that command. So here we have the account of the serpent uh, tempting Eve and Adam. And note that it's not God doing the temptation, but it is Satan doing it. And the temptation includes giving, in, giving Adam and Eve this sense that God is adding an unnecessary burden to their life, and then he draws doubt on the goodness of God's command. So Adam and Eve disobey God's good command. And it's a glorious command, and it's good for them. But this temptation darkened their understanding, and then it started to as they thought about it, excited their imagination, and then it moved their heart and their will to act in sin. And then sin hits the fan in Genesis 3. Note how immediate and comprehensive the impact is. They hide from God and they hide from one another. And in this moment, they lose freedom and joy and peace and they gain guilt and impurity and shame and fear. And the impact doesn't just stay with these two individuals, Adam and Eve, it spreads to their kids and to all of mankind ever since. And there are many storylines in Scripture, but a significant storyline, especially in the Old Testament, is the spread of sin to every single generation and all of mankind without exception. Everyone now is a sinner by nature and by choice. It's striking when you think about Genesis 3 that God doesn't just end everything there, start over. But God's mercy is already shown here that he permits his, his creation to continue even after the fall. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have God extending both what's called common grace and saving grace. Saving grace you're familiar with. Saving grace is God's redemptive work, especially through the death and resurrection of Jesus, applied to his people who believe so that they are forgiven and restored. That is saving grace. But what is common grace? That's often less familiar to Christians. The impact of sin is comprehensive, yet God keeps it in check. It's not as bad as it could be. That's common grace. A classic text for common grace is Matthew 5, 45. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The point that God continues to watch over his creation and care for humanity. The care is not restricted just to God's people, but every single person receives this type of common grace and mercy and care from God. And what are the implications of this? Well, I have three. One is that everything is a gift. It's good for you to think about your salvation as a gift, but everything is a gift because of God's common grace. Whether you believe or not, it's a gift because whether you're righteous or unrighteous, the sunrise, the rain, and even each and every breath you take is a gift. And it should be, a human heart should respond with gratitude to that gift. Second implication of common grace is that, and this is often our experience, that you often meet people who don't believe in Jesus or the gospel, yet they are extremely virtuous and good people. 
sometimes even more virtuous than Christians. And I know some people really get tripped up over this. I thought Christians are supposed to have it all together. Why is this atheist person or this person that follows another faith, why are they better or more virtuous than Christians? Common grace is how the scriptures explain this, that everybody has common grace, but that also doesn't mean just because you don't believe in the scriptures doesn't mean you can't do good things or come up with good public policy or have good art or good ideas. We believe that that can come from anybody, uh, any human being. Yet here's, and then come to page number three, and this is important. Yet no one is righteous, no one is good. That's what Romans 3 in the opening text that was read for the scripture reading, that's what it says. But if we have common grace and we're kind of good, what does it mean that no one is righteous and no one is good? But what that passage is getting at is not that, that people are incapable of doing good things because of common grace, whether you believe or don't believe, you can't do good things. Romans 3 is saying that no one possesses the type of righteousness and goodness that will save you from sin. No matter how much good or how much righteousness you are capable of, it's not enough to cleanse you and save you from the power of sin. Only saving grace through the Lord Jesus Christ can save you from the power of sin. Now that's the story, but how do we define sin? And it's important that we understand sin correctly and biblically because, again, the way that we define the problem will impact what we believe the solution to be. One inaccurate understanding of sin is that there isn't such a thing as sinful desires. It's just natural instincts that any, uh, any created being like an animal would have, just these instincts of survival. But scripture is clear that sin is not a natural instinct. It's not a good instinct. Sin is always unreasonable and never justified regardless of the circumstances. Still others understand people to be basically good and then they locate maybe sin or injustice in an environment, a system, or an institution. But if, if the problem is essentially an institution or a system, then the fix, according to this viewpoint, would be, well, if you just trade out this institution or this structure with something else, then we will solve the problem. Now here's the deal. Understanding our circumstances and environment and how they might contribute to sinful activity is important because it might modify the level of guilt, but it never makes somebody guiltless. And in addition, sinners do collaborate. They make culture and build systems and institutions. Yet, here's the key, and here's the, this is very important for those of you that might lean towards a institutional or systemic understanding of sin. The problem is, is if you re replace the system and you replace the institution and you think that's going to solve the issue of sin and injustice in the world, it's not going to, because the source of sin will still exist even if you replace the structure and even if you replace the institution with something else, because where sin is coming from is still in charge of those things, is still creating those things. So what is sin? The New City Catechism defines sin as this, quote, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world and in the world he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him, 
not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Sin is described in scripture as transgression, disobedience, unrighteousness, ungodliness, lawlessness, and enmity against God. The phrase that sticks out in this definition I just read is living without reference to God as a definition of sin. Often today that means living in reference to self, what I think is right or wrong, or what the world defines as right or wrong. Either way, it's not living within reference to God and His commands and His ways. Sin is a corruption of God's great creation and humanity that bears His image. Sin is bending what is meant to be straight and corrupting what is meant to be pure. God made mankind to use their reason, will, interests, emotions, passions, and physical abilities for righteous purposes. That's the end of which you use all those capacities that you have, but sin redirects those things and you use your reason and your will and your interest, emotions, passions, and physical abilities for unrighteousness instead. Sin may not take away the image of God from us, but it does change our nature. We are now guilty and unclean. Sin is deeply personal because it comes from the heart of each individual. So many times in the Gospels, you read these accounts where people are saying one thing, but Jesus pierces through their junk and the show that they're putting on and looks right into their heart. And so many times that phrase comes up that Jesus saw into their heart. Jesus looked into their heart. And Jesus even teaches that evil and sinful thoughts and actions come from the heart. It's not an institution or a structure, but the human heart is where sin is coming from. And because the human heart is full of sin, all of you and all of us are impacted. We now have a polluted understanding, an evil will, defiled conscience and we use our bodies for unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how good you are at some things, you're still guilty. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. James is saying that if you break one law in principle, you are a law breaker. Now, this does not mean that Scripture teaches that all sins are equal in kind or degree. For example, the Proverbs say that a person who steals because he is hungry is less culpable than a person who steals because of greed. That's Proverbs 6.30. Jesus teaches that there is a difference between lust to commit adultery and the action of actually committing the deed. Or Jesus teaches that are different degrees of punishment depending on the severity of your anger. This all comes from the Sermon of the Mount. So the scriptures make those distinctions, but here's what's important. No matter how you classify your sin, or gauge the impact of your sin, or judge the severity of somebody's sin, this is what the Bible makes very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the most short-sighted things and naive things to say in light of this is that you define right and wrong by, it's fine as long as I don't hurt anybody. And here, 
is where you start to reduce morality, maybe even sin, into individual, individualistic choice and responsibility. We can't reduce sin to individuals or their action. It includes the responsibility that each person has for their simple thoughts and choices and actions. Yet, the fall in sin is more comprehensive than only an individualistic angle can give us. Scripture often talks about the unity of humanity and of God's plan. There's one mankind, one law for everyone, and one redemption. There is a solidarity to this global and diverse humanity. We are bonded together not simply as individuals, but also as families and communities and generations. There are individual sins, but also corporate guilt in Scripture. The Scripture not only speaks of personal sin, but also family sins, social sins, and the sins of nations. Sinners don't just keep sins to themselves, they also impact others with their sinful actions. They build abusive institutions and force sinful ideas into the public square through oppressive laws. Sin has a massive impact on every area of life. It's unique and distinct. It impacts every class of society, every vocation in the marketplace, in every region of the world. Sin in urban areas may be different than sin in rural areas, yet they impact at one another and, 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 and have a result and application in each sphere of society. And we would be fools to minimize one area of sin and exaggerate it in another area. Sin is like playing whack-a-mole. You ever play one of those at an arcade or Chuck E. Cheese? It's going way back. I think Chuck E. Cheese still exists. Well, that's exactly, when you read the comprehensive nature of sin in the scriptures, that's the, that's the weird picture and image that came to my mind. Because you may really emphasize one sin or one problem in society, but then you solve it, and sin will express itself in another way. You might focus on sin of that group and think that it will only be limited to that group, and then you realize, because you're so focused on a different tribe, that that same sin is lurking in your tribe, in your group, in your own heart. That's how comprehensive sin is. It's so comprehensive, in fact, that it impacts all of creation. We live in a world of disease, natural disasters, and freak accidents. Because of sin, Romans 8 says that all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Yet there's a warning that Jesus gives in this connection of making a strict correlation between a specific sin of an individual and this groaning of creation. He rebukes those uh, in the gospel who thought that a person's sin or his parents' sin contributed to the blindness of somebody. And he warns against thinking that a tragedy or a freak accident is due to the sins of other people. Nonetheless, Romans 8 does teach that the groaning we experience, even outside of personal sin, corporate sin, the groaning of creation is impacted because of the fall in Genesis 3. But let's go back to this corporate notion of sin that's pushing back on a strict individualism that I think has crept into the church. The reason why this is so important to see, and not to reduce 
sin to this individualistic framework is that if you don't get a corporate understanding of sin, you will miss a significant aspect of the gospel message. And the way that you start to uh, wrap your mind around this and how I'm going to prepare you for Romans 5 before I read it is by recalling inheritance and using the concept of inheritance as a framework where you start to see the corporate nature of human life. We often uh, are a little bit more open to the idea of getting a good inheritance. Things are passed down uh, to you even if you didn't work for it, even if you weren't personally responsible for it. You could inherit a parent's wealth, an estate, or a family business. We also inherit things uh, that are not things, but uh, and they're not just financial or tangible things. We also inherit maybe a craft that your dad was good at, a vocation, and he passed it down to you by teaching it to you. Or we could inherit the social capital from your mom's social game and her network and her good standing in her community. Or you could inherit a family recipe that you keep just to yourself. That's one thing, one of my favorite pizza spots in St. Paul, Mama's Pizza, has that tradition. There's only like one person on staff that knows the recipe for the marinara sauce. That's an inheritance that came from Mama in this case. You gotta try out this pizza and you will never be able to replicate it because you don't get the privilege of gaining that inheritance. You didn't do anything for that inheritance in this category. It wasn't your personal responsibility that contributed to it, yet you get it without any work. And many of us have no objection to this. But what about the negative side, getting a bad inheritance? We do object often and raise a fuss if we inherit things or responsibilities that don't benefit us. You may inherit the bad financial choices of your parents. You might inherit a a family conflict in a community that you didn't contribute to you didn't contribute to it, but nonetheless you get it because of your last name. Or maybe you will, and this often happens, like you will inherit a pile of clutter from things that you did not buy over the course of your lifetime, but now you get it because your parents didn't get rid of it, right? Does anybody have that problem? You didn't do any of that, but you're gonna get all the stuff, right? from your parents um, that, that they had bought over the years. Many times we say, I didn't do anything to contribute to that mess, so therefore it's not my problem. But we understand it is your problem. That's the nature of inheritance. We tend to accept the benefits of community and interpersonal relationships, but reject the obligations and the responsibilities that come from community interpersonal relationships. You need both categories to understand Romans 5. There is no way to wrap your mind around the goodness of the good news in Romans 5 unless you ditch for a moment a purely individualistic understanding of life. Let me show you what I mean. Romans 5.15. Go with the framework of inheritance to these passages. Romans 5.15 says, So, for if the many die by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of, that, of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Verses 18-19. Consequently, 
Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. You see that category of inheritance there. Either scenario, it wasn't really up to you and your work why you inherited this. Many die because of the sin of one man, Adam. And it's through the work of Adam we inherit sin and condemnation and death. Even before you did a single disobedient action, you still inherited that sinful nature. Therefore, you are a sinner by nature and by choice because of the inheritance of sin through Adam. Yet, now see the good news of inheritance. If that's true, that you inherit all that through Adam, how much more glorious is the inheritance that you get through the true and better Adam of Jesus Christ? In Jesus Christ, we get the gift of grace and the redemptive work of Christ. From this one person, we get an inheritance that we did not earn and we didn't deserve. And we all should believe that. But the reverse is true as well. We also inherit a sinful nature and we have sinful choices. But we also have this inheritance that's been offered to us in the gospel of grace and life through the work of Christ and Christ alone. In that inheritance, what does the Lord saving us from? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Death comes from the reality of sin in our hearts and our world. We often think of death as the event of dying, just this one time where we die. But death in the scriptures is often contrasted as an experience with life. You have the experience of death and the experience of life in kind of an ongoing way. Death is not just when you literally die, but Scripture describes uh, death as conflict, misery, suffering, poverty, hunger, disease, the absence of peace and joy. That is all death and what it means to experience death. Life is satisfaction and joy and blessedness, peace and abundance. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, in this world we experience both, don't we? Life and death. Every moment, every day, we experience both of those realities. Yet also, much of Scripture is set up to communicate that you are either in the trajectory of your life moving towards one or the other, even as you're experiencing both in this life. You're either gaining more life in Christ, or you are hardening your heart and moving away from eternal life towards more death forever. The Bible says that everyone dies and then comes judgment. And who can stand in that day of judgment? So there are two outcomes, either eternal life or continuous death forever and ever and ever. Hell or God's judgment is not that you cease to exist, but that you continue to experience death 
forever and ever and ever. It's more conflict forever. It's more misery forever. It's more suffering forever. And in this sense, you experience the full misery of continuous death without an ounce of common grace applied to you forever and ever and ever. That's eternal judgment. That's hell. That's death. So how can we be pulled towards life both now and forever? Romans 5, 17. For if, and again going back to the inheritance, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift, the inheritance of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's how you are pulled towards life forever. Remember, we're talking about these categories not as long as this, but then in one of my evening routines, putting my kids to bed, and we're talking about death and life, darkness and light, and those types of categories in Scripture. And the question was, as we're talking about resurrection as the thing that breaks the power of sin and death, well, how do I get that? How do I get that eternal life? And I said, you get it because Jesus is eternal life. And the scriptures clearly say that if you just reach out and grab the hand of eternal life, that's how we are awakened from the dead forever and ever and ever. And I have this beautiful picture where my little girl just reached out her hand under her top bed and just said, Daddy, I'm grabbing his hand. And that's it. That's it, brothers and sisters. Right now, the experience of your life is both death and life, but the pull that Jesus offers is this inheritance, this eternal life that he's saying, will you take it? You just got to believe it. And you get pulled in that day of judgment into life everlasting if you were just to reach out and grab the one who rose from the dead for your joy and your redemption. Grab his hand. Touch the giver of life and take hold of your inheritance in Christ. That's the good news of restoration. And we'll tackle and really focus on that in next week's sermon. Let's move again to a time of communion as we celebrate at Trinity City Church each and every week.